Let us ask the Lord to help us understand his word as the spirit is the, is the one who brings us light and understanding, illuminating the word for us. Heavenly Father, we come to you now and we pray that you would, by your spirit, teach us from the word. The word that is inspired by the spirit and laid down in scripture by the spirit is now also illumined by the spirit for us. The Spirit is the one who helps us understand. The Spirit is the one who gives us new eyes to see, new ears to hear, and a heart that is ready to believe. And so we pray, Father, that you would help us this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 1. Please read along. I'll read out loud, but you please follow along. Many of you probably have memorized this psalm at some point in your life, uh, and perhaps you can remember it and uh, follow along with what you remember and how you have memorized it. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Here we end this reading of God's word. Why is Psalm 1 Psalm 1? Well, that's kind of a weird question. Why is Psalm 1? the first psalm that we read when we open the, our Bibles to the book of Psalms. There's a reason, and as we read the book of Psalms, you realize that this book didn't just fall out of heaven uh, in its present form. It was edited. It was put in order by someone. We don't know who. It may have been several people, actually, over the course of time. We do know this that by the time uh, of, of uh, the coming of Jesus Christ, the book of Psalms was well established in the form that we now have it. Uh, there have not been changes since it was put in its final form, but perhaps one of the latter prophets, perhaps one of the great writing prophets, uh, undertook the task of editing. Perhaps it was someone like Ezra or even or something like that. There are many different kinds of psalms in the book of Psalms. Uh, we have psalms of praise that often have the words, in, in Hebrew at least, uh, in English we say praise the Lord, but in Hebrew it's hallelujah. Uh, we have psalms of ascent, and there are titles in those psalms of ascent. Those were psalms that were sung by the people of Israel as they ascended up to Jerusalem on the great feast days for worship in Jerusalem. You always go up to Jerusalem. You never go down to Jerusalem. No matter where you are on the map, 
you're always going up to Jerusalem, not only geographically, because Jerusalem was built on a, on a mountain, on a hill, uh, but spiritually, you are going up to the temple to worship the Lord. You're going up uh, there. Uh, there are psalms that we call imprecatory psalms. So who can tell me what an imprecation is? What is an imprecatory psalm? Anyone know what that means? A what? Well, it is pleading, but it's pleading for a specific thing. For judgment on the wicked. The imprecatory psalms are often hard psalms for us to understand, and particularly in our culture where everyone is supposed to accept everything. What does it mean when we're calling down judgment from God on the wicked? You know? Uh, break their teeth, Ugh. dash their little ones on the rocks. C.S. Lewis had a real problem with the imprecatory psalms. He thought that they were sub-Christian. Christianity had advanced our understanding to the point where we shouldn't, as Christians, use the imprecatory psalms. C.S. Lewis was great great writer, great man, and, and so forth. But he wasn't perfect, and he had a few, a few crazy ideas that, that rattled around up there. Uh, this was one of them. Uh, there are psalms of lament, psalms where the psalmist cries out to God in pain and in suffering and uh, pleads with God to defend him and to care for him and lift him up. Often at the hands of the wicked, he has suffered, and often he has been betrayed in some way, and he, he laments this condition. And of course, there are psalms about the Messiah. Psalms about the Messiah. A whole stream of psalms that deal with the messianic promise rooted in the covenant that God made with David, the Davidic covenant, but then as time goes on, expanded through the prophets and so forth, and these messianic psalms point us to David's greater son, uh, the Messiah, the anointed one who would come and redeem his people. Psalm 1 is a psalm that is kind of a, an all-purpose, general-purpose psalm, but there's a reason Psalm 1 is our first psalm, and that is... Psalm 1 encompasses one of the, really one of the great themes that pervades so many other psalms and even other kinds of psalms. It presents to us the theme of antithesis. Okay, who can tell me what that word means? Antithesis. I know Presbyterians are not used to talking in church. But, all right. But by the way, as we read, as we, one of the Psalms we'll look at is Psalm 150. If anybody, if we sing, sing Psalm 150, we sang it, a version of it today, earlier today. Psalm 150 blasts into smithereens the whole idea that Presbyterians are the frozen chosen. Psalm 150 is exuberant, it is almost wild. In, its, uh, in the, the rhythm of the psalm, the building of the psalm, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. It, it makes us a little uncomfortable sometimes. But, hmm? Yeah, it's rooted in that concept of opposites. 
There's opposites. So one of the main themes of the Psalms is the opposition or the opposite of the opposites of right, the righteous and the wicked. The righteous and the wicked. You see this theme pervade all the Psalms, really. The righteous and the wicked. And here we start with Psalm 1, whose theme is the antithesis of the, between the righteous and the wicked. They have, in the title I gave this message tonight, they have two delights and two destinies. The delight of the wicked is to scoff. The delight of the wicked is to scorn. The delight of the wicked is to break God's law, to go their own way. And the happy man, the blessed man, that's what blessed means, literally, is a, a man who is blessed, is a man who's happy. You've heard that saying, happy wife, happy life. Every wife reminds her husband of that, I think. No, well, I mean, there's a point to that. It can be abused, but there's a point to that. But actually, Psalm 1 is telling us the happy man is the man who devotes himself to God's word and living that word, putting that word into practice in his life. The happy man, the blessed man, has a delight the wicked has, have a delight. The, the first we get of this, the first thought we get of this, is the, the description of the blessed man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. The wicked delight in wicked counsel. Their thoughts are not God's thoughts. Their thoughts are the antithesis of God's thoughts. The counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, the way of life, the way that they, of sinners' thoughts, the way that they act, the way of their lifestyle uh, and their commitments are, are the antithesis of the blessed man. And he does not sit in the seat of scoffers. He does not sit in the seat of scoffers. Now, I'm sure you've heard, if you've gone through Psalm 1 before, that there's this progression in this first section here. Uh, the godly man, the, the blessed man, does not walk, he does not stand, and he does not sit. There, there's that progression, walking with, and then, you know, I kind of like your company. Let's sit down and, and, and talk to some more. He doesn't sit with them. And, and, and or, uh, he, he, he does not listen to them. I'm sorry, he does not walk to them. He does not stop and stand in the way. Let's stand together. Let's sit down and so forth. He rejects that. There is this tendency, once one gives oneself to the wicked counsel, that it becomes more and more predominant in your life. It grows as an influence in your life. So once you walk, and then you stand, and then you sit down comfortably with the wicked and the scoffers. You see, one delight is the delight of the wicked. Make no mistake about that. There are many who truly, wickedly delight in wickedness. Paul certainly describes that way of life in Romans chapter 3, where he brings together many Old Testament verses and describes in Romans chapter 3 the, the depravity of man. The poison of, of asps is under their lips. Their feet run to wickedness. Their hands are quick to, to do what is evil and so forth. He's actually bringing together several passages, many from Psalms, some from Isaiah and so forth, 
into that indictment of human nature. Make no mistake, the wicked delight in wickedness. And the psalmist refers to this in several places. A delight in wickedness. The, the blessed man, on the other hand, by the way, isn't it, isn't it a mark of insanity? See, I, see, I think unbelief is a form of insanity. I, I'm sorry if that comes across as a little blunt, but unbelief is really a form of insanity. And insanity really is a way, uh, it's an inability to deal with reality. And, uh, and unbelief is not dealing with reality. The reality is there's a God. There's a reality is he has communicated his will to us. The reality is we live in his world that he has made. To scoff at that, to rebel against God, to not believe in God, is a failure to deal with the reality that that pervades our world and confronts us every, every day. The heavens declare what? The glory of God. The heavens declare. You realize every time you look up in the sky, you're receiving a testimony to the glory of God. That's how you should look at the heavens. In the daytime, in the nighttime, that's how you look at the heavens. They're shouting at us about the glory of God. The righteous man has a very different delight. The psalmist says that this blessed man delights in the law of God, the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. Not just enough to say, I delight in the law law of God, but I actually give myself to the study and the understanding of the word of God. Now, this word law has different, in in context, it has different meanings. Sometimes law is very specifically about the commandments and the statutes and and, uh, so forth. The law of God. When we talk about the law of God, we almost immediately think of what? The Ten Commandments. Right? In the the Old Testament. Uh, What are the two places in the Old Testament where you can find the Ten Commandments? Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5. Okay, handy reference there. Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5. Two places where the commandments are listed. In this case, though, the meaning of law is a little bit broader. Well, a whole lot broader, actually. It means more instruction. The law of God is also an instruction. Now, we're used to thinking of the law of God as telling us what to do, how to live. But there's a subtler application of the commandments. And we find this, by the way, when we, when we read a psalm like Psalm 119, which we're reading in a, uh, we read a part of that this morning as part of our Uh, our uh, confession uh, of sin. Uh, We read the first two sections of Psalm 119. And in that psalm, David writes over and over and over again about the blessedness of being instructed by God's law, his commandments. Should not be afraid of the commandments. If you're a believer in God, if you love the Lord Jesus Christ, you should love his commandments. And you should love the knowledge and instruction that comes to us 
in the commandments and in the whole revelation. And that's really where the, the broadest application of this term, the law of God, it's in the whole revelation. Now, for many years, the people of God had a very small Bible, you might say. They had the five books of Moses. And that only came after, well, after the Exodus, toward the end of Moses' life. They had the five books of Moses, the Torah. Torah, instruction, Torah, the books of the law. Now, there were, uh, God had given more revelation, but it had not been written down in the same form. We have a fuller revelation now. We have a, a complete Bible now. We have not only the, the writings of Moses, but we have the prophets. We have the writings. Uh, there's a, a part of the Old Testament called the writings, and, and it's the poetry books, uh, Psalms, Proverbs, and Song of Solomon, and, and the Ecclesiastes, and so forth. And then there are parts of the Old Testament, the, the prophets. So you have the law, the writings, and the prophets as three major divisions of the Old Testament. But God was pleased to add even more, wasn't he? And he told us he was going to give more. He told us people to expect more. And so now we have the Gospels. We have the New Testament history book, which is the book of Acts. We have the epistles. We have apocalyptic literature, which focuses on the end of the age, uh, the, the direct intervention by God himself into Earth's history. Uh, to bring to conclusion the end of the age. Where are we all headed? Where, where are we going? How is this story going to end up? I'm very glad we have apocalyptic literature. When that, that word apocalypse often is understood in the sense of terrible, terrible things happening. But the word itself means the revealing, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Apocalypsis the revealing of Jesus Christ. So the story of apocalyptic literature is Jesus, the full mediatorial re, uh, revelation or revealing of Jesus Christ and all that, that, all that goes with that. The righteous man delights himself in this, in the law of the Lord, in God's word. And in that, he meditates day and night. Okay, now I probably have lost you right there. Because we all, up to this point, we're all on board. Oh, yes, I love the Bible. Okay, do you meditate in it day and night? Day and night? We're not talking about a little 10-minute devotional in the morning. We're talking about constantly being refreshed and instructed by the Word of God. You meditate in it, and meditation it's not just a superficial reading. One of the greatest things you can do to meditate on God's word is ask questions. Why did God put this in here? Why is he telling me this? What is his purpose in this? What does this passage reveal to me about the ways of God, the character of God, the ministry of Jesus Christ? the person and work of the triune God. What does this passage teach me? And how does that change the way I live? How does that challenge me in what I'm doing, the decisions I'm making? You see, that's the delight. It's not just a, a superficial, uh, in name only, uh, 
uh, you know, oh yeah, I love the Bible. The Bible's God's word. The Bible, we all raise our fists. Amen. Bible's God's word. Okay, but you haven't gotten it yet until you're meditating day and night. That's, what's makes, that's what makes you a blessed man. And that you delight in meditating in the word of God day and night. Ministers have a great privilege in their work in that we actually have to meditate in the Bible day and night, pretty much all day long. We're, we're working in some way in the scripture. Our shortcoming is that we're working as a professional to deal with the technical questions and the exegesis and so forth. And even pastors need to set those studies aside from time to time and simply come and be instructed ourselves by the word of God. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Now, two delights, delighting in wickedness, scoffing, unbelief, delighting in the word of God, meditating on it day and night, allowing God through his word and spirit to form you, and instruct you and guide you. There are two destinies that flow from these two delights. Remember the antithesis, and the, the both the, de, the delight is an antithesis, and the destiny is an antithesis. For the blessed man, it says this. He's like a tree planted by the streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all he does, he prospers. That's a description of the life of the blessed man. God blesses his life. Now, we have, a, we have kind of a debate. Should we always expect temporal blessings in our lives if we're doing the right thing, if we're following God's word, if we're learning and studying and delighting in his word, should, should life be good? Uh, should this be your best life now? Oh, somebody wrote a book on that. Didn't they? Your best life now. Well, actually not, because there's more to our story than just what is happening now. Though I will say, I have seen over and over and experienced over and over God's blessing in this life. Of course, I would have to say this, that one of God's biggest blessings is my life is sitting in the congregation here. Amen, men? Oh, thank you. Okay. (laughs) But God blesses us in this life. Even when we suffer, the suffering saints, the persecuted saints, can find many reasons for thanksgiving and many sources of gladness and happiness in this life. We do not measure our happiness by material possessions. We do not measure our happiness by wealth or fame or or influence that we might have. We measure our happiness in the context of our relationship to God. And the blessings that he gives us, blessings that many people would not recognize as blessings. Uh, The story of the righteous man goes on. There's a a break here as uh, the psalmist considers the wicked. But ultimately, the destiny of the righteous man is seen in in the great judgment. The Lord knows the way of the righteous but the way of the wicked will perish. Eternal life is the destiny 
of this blessed man who reads and studies, meditates, believes, acts on, puts into practice the Bible, the scriptures. Because he will be, as he reads and studies, he will be uh, learning the story of salvation. He will be learning about his own sin. He will be learning about God's provision of a savior for his sin and how God sent his son into the world. Uh, that those who believe on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. He will be reading that, being instructed by that, and believing it. And he will stand in the congregation during the judgment. Uh, there, the, the change point, by the way, look back at verse 4, if you're following along here. Because there's where the break is and the, the shift in scene We've been talking about the delight of the blessed man and the the way of the life of the blessed man, the destiny of the blessed man. Verse 4 simply says, the wicked are not so. In, In the Hebrew language, there's actually, it's very terse. It's very brief. Literally, it should be translated this, this way. Not so, the wicked. Not so. Describing the way of life of the blessed man, describing his fruitfulness and and the blessings that come to him through his love of God's law, his delight of God's instruction. Not so the wicked. There's the antithesis. Once again, not so the wicked. The wicked are not so. But their way of life is described this way. They are like chaff that the wind drives away. We don't necessarily understand that from our own experience because most of us are not farm, wheat farmers. Uh, but part of you know, getting that grain to market requires not only reaping, but also winnowing the wheat, which means separating the kernels of wheat from the outer husks of the, of the, the wheat. And in old, in ancient times, they used to throw it up in the air. They'd have a threshing floor and throw that wheat up in the air, beat it, throw it up in the air. The wind would catch the chaff, those outer husks, and blow the chaff, the light chaff, and the heavier, nutritious wheat would fall back to the ground. The wicked are like the chaff that the wind drives away. No stability, no lasting place, no great joys. I've often wondered, are atheists happy? Well, they are in a sense because they, they they find happiness in their scoffing, in their unbelief. You know, there's a, a, I guess in the last 15 years or so, there's a movement called the New Atheism. You've probably heard of, you know, Richard Dawkins and some other people that have written books attacking the idea that there is a God. And he's very clever. He tries to be funny in his attacks against the idea of God. But I don't think he's a very happy man. When he laughs, there's bitterness. There's hatred. I have a friend, an OPC pastor, Jason Wallace, who puts together films uh, 
they're kind of based on the same style as Ken Burns' uh, documentaries. He did one on the Civil War, one on baseball. You know, he's done several of these documentaries, and Jason has copied his style. Jason did one on atheism. And I got to tell you, it's an eye-opener. He starts off with video of atheists, prominent atheists who have committed suicide. And there are a lot of them. There's not a, a little handful. There's a lot. You see, that way of life is, is not a life of blessedness. It's not a life of happiness. It's a life of despair. It's a life of despair. Not so the wicked. They're like the chaff. Meaningless. Light. To be blown away by the wind. And in the judgment... Verse 5, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. They will not be among those who are welcomed into the kingdom of God, into my heaven, as God would say, as Jesus would say. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. I will give you charge over many things. Enter into the joy of my kingdom. The wicked, not so. They will not stand in the judgment, but they will be cast into eternal punishment, eternal judgment. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. There's the ultimate antithesis. The antithesis is traced through these two delights, these two ways of life, these two destinies, and these two end results in the judgment. So which part of that antithetical equation are you on? I would hope everyone here is on the, that side of the equation that is described as, as the blessed man's part. Do you delight in God's law, in his word? Do you delight in it and meditate in it day and night? You give yourself to the study and the meaning and the understanding of God's word, and especially, you might say, the application of God's word. Oh, I don't know. There are a lot of tough parts in the Bible, and I get, I get all tangled up, and I don't know what I'm reading anymore, and it's just too, it's way over my head. Sorry. I think I'm just going to wait for the pastor to teach us in Sunday school or during the sermon or something like that, because I just get too confused. Come on, people. I'm going to be a little rough with you right now. Yes, there are difficult passages in the Bible, but you know what? By, if, you're an actual, if you're actually meditating in God's word night and day, you're going, to, you're going to see connections between that problem passage and other parts of the Bible, and suddenly you'll begin to understand and get more understanding in the parts that are difficult. Your excuse that it's way over your head is more a self-indictment Pardon me, a self-indictment of your laziness. It's written in common language. The common language of the Hebrew people, the common language of the Roman Greek Empire, and translated over and over again by people who give themselves to the understanding of God's word. We have this great privilege of having not only a translation of the Bible, but our choices of translations. 
Some are stronger than others in, other, in some places, and others are stronger in other places, but we have a huge benefit in that. And if you're still troubled, we have commentaries, and we have Bible dictionaries, and we have a court concordances, and all kinds of help that are available to, to be used by ordinary people. Oh, wait, didn't you just have a Sunday school class on ordinary? Yeah. There's, there's really something to be said by, about ordinary. I challenge you to begin, if you're not already doing it, read God's word. Study God's word. And when you finish with a passage, read it over again. When you finish with a book, read it over again. Don't think, oh, I've got I've to read the whole Bible in a year. I've got to just race through. No, ponder it. That's what it means to meditate. Take your time. Take your time. Read whole books, maybe. I, let me give you a, something. I think I, I, I might have said this here one time. One of the books that people claim to have a really hard time understanding is, of course, the book of Revelation. Let me challenge you. It's not that long. It takes maybe an hour to read through it if you don't get distracted by stuff. But read through the whole book. And then the next day, read through the whole book. And then the next day, read through the whole book. Guess what? It'll start falling into line. And you'll start remembering connections between the book of Revelation and other books of the Bible. You'll start seeing there's over 400 Old Testament references in the book of Revelation. Either direct quotes or uh, allusions to uh, Old Testament passages, Old Testament imagery, and so forth. Over 400. And it's in making those connections that things will start falling into line for you. And you can do that with other books. You had a problem with the book of Romans? It's only 16 chapters. Read the book and read it again. You'll see how Paul lays out in beautiful, logical form the, the gospel message. I challenge you to do that. And then look for the antithesis in your life. That your life will be on a trajectory of blessedness. That will not only take you from God's word, but take, follow you through your whole life and into eternity. Okay, I said there might be some questions. Ooh, we're almost ah, we're almost out of time. Sorry, no questions. No, uh, any quick questions that you might have, or things you saw in this text that you think are, is important, kind of jumped out at you. Yeah. I can't really think of anything right offhand, because uh, certainly, you know, by the by the time of the latter prophets, by the time after the exile, during the intertestament period, the the Book of Psalms was formed. I mean, it it, it hasn't changed. 
if there were problems, you might have stories of people having problems with the Psalms. And I don't recall really any any parts or, or specific Psalms where uh, out of the covenant community, you might say, people had a problem with that, except some of the imprecatory Psalms. I mean, read the Psalm about the, the captivity in Babylon. By the waters of Babylon, uh, they're being, the, the, the uh, Judeans are being taken captive to Babylon after Nebuchadnezzar had, had burned their city, starved them out, destroyed their temple, and so forth. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat down for a rest on our way to, to Babylon. And our captors said, sing us some of the songs of Zion. You can almost sense the sneer in their voices. Sing us some of your songs, you Israelites, you Judeans. And the song that they sing is a song calling on God's judgment to come, which ultimately it did. People have a hard time. Let me give you a quick view about the imprint. I think as time goes by, as we, and we're all becoming more and more uh, uh, aware of persecution. We still don't, uh, as Americans, yeah, we, we talk about it, but we still don't experience it like our brothers and sisters are in other countries. Uh, somebody, was it you who mentioned your friend Andrew? Yeah, we all hear, about, we've heard about uh, you know, congreg- whole congregations being arrested and carted off to prison and sometimes staying in prison for months and years, some of the, the leaders of these congregations. It's breaking out in China again. It's, it's, uh, it's all over. As persecution becomes more prevalent... The imprecatory psalms are going to become more precious to us. I don't want to see destruction, but I know in God's plan, it is his will to judge the wicked. And so I pray for that, too. Yes? Oh! Yes, so Isaac Watts didn't really have a problem with the Psalms so much. Well, he did a little bit. This might answer a little of your question. Isaac Watts really had a problem with the bad music of early Psalters. Musically and uh, as poetry, some of the early paraphrases of the Psalms were really bad. And Isaac Watts was a musical genius, and he really did not like the, the uh, Psalters that were in use, common use in the Church of England and, and so forth. Uh, he also thought, of course, that David, he believed that David, in a, in a way, Isaac Watts was a, a tiny bit of a dispensationalist, not really full-blown, but he believed that David wrote his Psalms prior to the coming of Christ, and his Psalms did not fully reflect. So there's this joke that Isaac Watts wanted to make David sing like a Christian, he wanted to kind of update the Psalms and paraphrase the Psalms to reflect the full reality of the incarnation and the work, person and work of Christ, which, of course, in the Psalms themselves is prophetically looked forward to in the Messianic Psalms, but not actually laid out as, a, as an event or, as, uh, or the implications of that laid out. So Isaac Watts, his main contribution to 
English hymnody was to take the Psalms and recast the Psalms, re-paraphrase them with, uh, with an emphasis on the fulfillment of that Psalm in Christ. I really can't argue with that. I think that's, that's a good thing. I, I would say David did sing like a Christian. He sang like a believer. And you ought to remember that, too, because when David writes about the wonders and beauty of the law, he's not writing, Psalm 119 is not an expression of a legalist who is under the conduct. It is a song of praise for the blessing of God's revelation. He writes as a believer. He sings as a believer. Okay, that was a great question. And my wife actually reminded me of the answer, which is why she's my blessing and <laughs> so forth. Any other questions? Yes. Yeah. Right. Well, I'm I'm trying to look up Psalm 109. Be not silent, O God, of my praise, for wicked and deceitful mouths are opened against me, speaking against me with lying tongues. They encircle me with words of hate and attack me without cause. In return for my love, they accuse me, but I give myself to prayer. So they reward me evil for good and hatred for my love. Appoint a wicked man against him. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is tried, let him come forth guilty. Let his prayer be counted as sin. May his days be few. May another take his office. May his children be fatherless and his wife a wit. Boy, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, doesn't he? May the creditor seize all that he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his toil. Let there be none to extend kindness to him, nor any to pity his fatherless children. May his posterity be cut off. May his name be blotted out in the second generation. And I, I'm going to stop there. It goes, it goes on. Uh, for a long time, it goes, wow, 31 verses. You know what I say to all that? Amen. And that's a hard thing to say. But you know what? I've known wicked men. I've known wicked men in the church. And God dealt with them, maybe not exactly like this, but God has a special way of protecting his church from the wicked. Much of what I just read has happened to some of these men. I've seen this psalm in action. I have to say amen, hard as it is. Part of our problem with the imprecatory psalms is that we do not understand the sinfulness of sin, as we should. 
We, do, we think of sin as unpleasant, maybe it hurts, it's not nice. But sin is a slap in God's face. Therefore, God is righteous when he judges. Your judgments are righteous. By the way, you know where this really hits the road? When it happens to you, when God disciplines you and me in some way. And we are forced to simply say, God, your judgments are righteous. I submit. I confess my sin and submit to your will. These are hard sayings, hard parts of the Bible. But, uh, Joe, you're, you're not wrong. This, this psalm can be and probably should be applied to the wicked very clearly. And the judgments that David writes about here will indeed happen. If not in this life, then in the life to come. They will happen. Wow, I hate to end it on that, on that note. Uh, but thank God that his grace has saved us. Not because we were wise, not because we were well-intentioned, but by his grace, he has saved his people from their sin and from the eternal judgment that is in store for the wicked. Let's close in prayer, if you will. Heavenly Father, the Psalms are powerful. They shape our minds. They give words to our songs. They praise you. They instruct us. They teach us about the Messiah who, is, who comes to us as our Savior and Redeemer. And we pray tonight as we begin these studies of the Psalms that you would bless us fill us with a desire to know your word more and more and to be instructed by it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.